talking about how he was the bread of life. And that was a big controversy to a lot of people. Not only did he say he was the bread of life, but he's also going to say today that his flesh and blood must be eaten if you want to have any part in him. And that was totally controversial. I mean, of course, right? If somebody said, you all got to be cannibals and you got to eat my flesh, you would say, that's disgusting. Um, even worse to the Jewish people, that was, that. I mean, Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall not murder. How are you going to eat somebody's flesh and blood unless you murder them, right? So that's going to be, that's going to be a big deal. There's nothing anywhere in Jewish history where anything like eating somebody else um, was ever condoned or helped. That was actually something that when, um, when Joshua led Israel into the promised land and they drove people out, some of the people that they drove out that God said he's pouring out judgment on them, that's what they did. They, they did that kind of thing. When, um, when Ruth was from Moab and the people of Moab didn't mix, the people of Israel didn't want to be with the people of Moab, some of it was because Moab worshipped Molech, and some of the practices of Molech were disgusting and terrible, like that too. So, completely foreign stuff for Jesus to say, you got to eat my flesh, okay? So we're going to start, I, I, just, I say all that to put it in context of... I mean, we have communion once a month. Some churches have communion every day. The whole eating my flesh is kind of lost on us, kind of like you must be born all over again. Nobody hears that and is shocked, like, how in the world is that going to happen? But I I want to bring back some of that. that, That's disgusting to say you have to eat my flesh, right? So, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't that wild? How many times he says in that little section, my goal is to raise people up on the last day. How many times he says that... If you believe, whoever believes in the Son of Man, whoever believes in me, I will raise up. And there's this little bitty bit in here where he says, all that the Father that gives to me will come to me. And you might read that from the perspective of, oh, that means God picks who gets saved. And because whoever God calls comes. But then the very next thing he says is whoever comes to me will never be cast out. 
Whoever, whoever wants to will never be cast away, will never, will never be shooed away. Uh, there, John Piper goes into great detail on this in a, a really good book called Desiring God. And he says, if you wonder if God picks people or if we have a choice, what you need to know that's even more important than that is if you want to draw near to God, you don't have to be afraid of being picked. Because if God didn't pick you, nothing in you would want to draw close to God. And all of a sudden, like that, that is so good for me. Because it's, there are scriptures that you can find that go either way. That say that God picks everybody and you can't be saved unless God pre-picked you. There's a whole bunch of Jesus' Jesus's words that where he's giving people a choice and he's laying the choice out there before them that all backs up that it's kind of up to you. But to jump past all of that and to not make it, you know, either or thing and just say, man, if you want to seek Jesus, you can know that God want, is God is pleased with that. God's not going to turn anyone away. I say all that to say because the worst the worst harm that can come from that, the thing that makes me so mad about the, the Calvinist or Arminian debate is the guy I talked to one time that was told that he was predestined to go to hell because he had committed some sin and somebody told him, well, you're such a bad person, you must be chosen to be lost. And that broke that guy's heart. And he sat and talked to me and he's like, I don't want to be condemned, Dan. I was like, wow, can I grow up to be like you? Because I want to be that desperate for mercy. I want to be, you know, Jesus tells the, the parable about the tax collector that wouldn't even come into the church because he, he needed God's mercy so bad. And the Pharisee that came all the way up to the front row and said, thank you, God, that I am forgiven everything and that I fast twice a week and that I'm so holy. And Jesus said, the guy waiting at the door that was too afraid to come in is the one that was justified. So, hang, don't, don't let this become a controversy, but hang on those words that Jesus said, all who come to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. It says in Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. And we already read John 3.16. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right? So all of that stuff applies to all who are Christians, all who are in Christ, all who believe in Him are going are to be part of Jesus' plan and goal to do the will of God who sent Him, which is to lose nothing, this is verse 39, lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise them up on the last day. The other exciting thing about this is the last day is when it all begins, right? We've talked about the end of the world before and how the end of the world is the beginning of everything. Because the last day is the last time days will matter. The last, the last day is the last time that there will be time. And from then on, we'll be raised up in Christ and we'll live lives and it'll just go on and on and on and on forever. All of our needs provided for, 
um, no sin in us to compete or to need or want anything. Everything will be satisfied. And then we'll just express that to each other. And that will be everlasting life, is expressing the joy that's in us of having everything completed in Christ. Isn't that wild? So the Jews grumbled about him. What? Come on now. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've came down from heaven? Jesus says, do not grumble against yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. So again, he says this. These guys were grumbling. All the stuff that Jesus said, they didn't hear any of it because they were stuck on, did he just say he came down from heaven? How did he, he didn't come down from heaven. We know Joseph and Mary on 3rd Street in Nazareth, right next door to the carpenter shop. We know them. He didn't come down from heaven. He know they, they, that was the stumbling block for that. But he answers that again. I will raise them up. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay, now what about that? We get some insight into this with Pharaoh and Moses. Because the first time Moses is sent to Pharaoh... And Aaron is the spokesperson for Moses. We kind of forget that part, and none of the movies show that part. So Moses tells Aaron. Aaron tells Pharaoh. Pharaoh, all this stuff is going to happen. Let my people go. He gives Pharaoh a chance. Pharaoh says, "Mm -mm, we're not doing this. At the very beginning, when you read through that in Exodus, at the beginning, sometimes Pharaoh is like, yeah, okay, we'll do it. And then he changes his mind at the last second. So Pharaoh is kind of like almost giving in to the Lord. But then it says a couple times in there, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and he resisted. Romans chapter 1 talks about how God reaches out to people. All the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. But people resist and they want something else. And they want to serve created things. Created things, you know, when Paul's talking about it, he's thinking about idols and you know, uh, things carved out of wood, things carved out of gold, things built that people will actually bow down to and think that that built thing, that constructed thing is going to solve their problems. Just like I really want a Maserati. Because if I had a Maserati, that would solve a lot of my problems. Right? Right? I mean, idolatry comes in many forms. In Romans 1, it says, whenever somebody wants something, whatever it is, when they want it and they set their heart to it, God gives them over to it. You want that so bad, I will give it to you fully. If you you are greedy for money and wealth, I will curse you with wealth. If you are greedy for fame and attention and and self, self, me, 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 I will bless you with the curse of all kinds of attention. That's what Romans 1 says. God gave them fully over to their desires. 
God gives us fully over. The awesome promise about that, that's, I mean, that all sounds terrible, but it's also exciting because Jesus said, whenever you seek, you'll find. Whenever you knock, the door will be opened. Whenever you ask, will be given to you. And he says all of that in the context of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you desire God and you want God, I want God in my life. I want Jesus. I want to know the Bible. God's like, I'm just going to give you over to knowing me. And he gives all the fullness of himself. You say, I just, Lord, I just want to be able to pray and, and see my prayers answered. God says, I'm just going to give you over to that. And I'm going to give you the ability to pray six hours a day, whatever. God gives us over to things. So these guys, if you read, you don't get it so much from John, but you get it a lot from Luke. And if you read John and Luke at the same time in parallel, because Luke's in order, John skips all over the place. We'll find that out here in about three verses. In the beginning, Jesus is really reaching out to the Pharisees. It's easy from the movies, and it's easy from... You know, the way we read the scriptures, to just think the Pharisees are the bad guys and they're all in black hats on black horses and Jesus is the good guy and he's all in a white cowboy hat and a white horse and they're just against each other. But early on, Jesus is really reaching out to the Pharisees. He's really wanting them to learn. He's wanting them. He's like, guys, this is what you teach. This is what you've been waiting for. Here I am. And they just resist, resist some of them. Some of them listen. Nicodemus, you know, John 3, he comes and asks Jesus questions. But these Pharisees just don't want to hear, don't want to hear. What does he mean we got to eat his flesh? What does he mean he came down from heaven? We know his mom and dad. He couldn't have come down from heaven. And so God gives them fully. They wanted power. They wanted to keep everything the way it was and not be open to a Savior. God gives them over to that fully. What's really wild is if you, if you don't stumble over the stuff Jesus says, and you really desire it, and you really want it, it changes the way it comes across. Okay, so starting in verse 45, listen to this section. This is Jesus talking. It was written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Basically, he's saying right there, nobody's seen God except for me. So, if that's true, that nobody's seen God except for Jesus, wouldn't you really want to spend time with Jesus? Wouldn't you really want to be like, oh my gosh, that dude, I want to talk to him. Uh, Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they all died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right, so if you're believing Jesus really is the Son of God, and He says, the bread of life is me, 
you're going to be like, I don't understand that, Jesus. Will you explain that to me more? Will you tell me more about that? What, what do, you do? do you really want us to eat your flesh? Is that what you're talking about? Remember, um, Jesus is in the boat with the, with the disciples. And he says, you guys, you've got to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples are all like, did we not bring enough bread? Is he talking about the bread that we brought along in the boat? And he says, no. It's not because we don't have enough bread. Didn't I just feed 5,000 people with a handful of bread? Didn't I just feed 7,000 people with a handful of fish? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, that they love to talk about themselves. They love their power. They love to draw attention to themselves. All of a sudden, they get it. Oh, he's talking about something else. This is the same kind of thing. He's speaking figuratively. He's speaking metaphorically. I'm the bread of life. So at any meal, any first century meal, one of the main basic base, base items, staples, there we go, staples of that meal is going to be bread. You wouldn't eat fish without bread. You're not going to eat any kind of meat without bread. Bread, sometimes your meal would just be bread. Jesus is saying, I am the most basic thing that, that sustains you. I am the most rudimentary food that you could consume to, to be sustained. I'm that. I'm the bread of life. When manna fell in the, in the wilderness, they didn't make oatmeal out of it. They made bread out of it. Bread was, was the sustaining thing. And just like that manna sustained them, Jesus is saying, I will sustain you. I am that bread. And I'm living bread. You can eat it and not die. Not die because he's talked so many times about the last day being lifted up, being raised up. He's not talking about hospitals and pulse rates and all that stuff. He's talking about what's going to happen on the last day. Are you going to be raised up or not? That's what dying is. And so he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right, so now we go back to Romans. Paul talks about living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. And living according to the flesh is just living like an animal. Just living like like this meat that's on me is what drives me. And if I'm hungry, I kill and I eat. If I want, I kill and I take. That's flesh. Just living like I'm not a new creation. Like I'm not an eternal being. Like I don't have a spirit in me. And so what Jesus gives for the world is the, the ability that he has to just live by his flesh. Just to live by his, his flesh and bones. And what he live like an animal. He gives all of that up and he lives in obedience to the Father. So he's the basic sustenance of life. He is giving up his own will for our life. And he says, you got to live off of me. Live off of me. Seek after me. Desire me. Stay close to me. And that's how you don't die. 
But they don't get it. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus just pushes their buttons a little bit more. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, so just remember, Jesus loves to tell parables to really honk people off. He really does. And when he does it, that's how he separates the people that are like, I want to know more about this. I'm, I'm, you, you say some pretty weird stuff, dude. I want to talk to you more. I want to investigate this more. From all the people that are just like, that dude's crazy. He's got a demon. I'm not going to listen to him. You, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drink my blood abides in me, and I in him. He says it twice. He goes through. You really got to eat my flesh and blood. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Here we go again. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So if you read through the Psalms, there's all kinds of places in the Psalms where the law is sweet. The law is life-giving. Okay, they're not eating the law. Well, Ezekiel, I think it was Ezekiel, he ate, he had the scroll on the law and ate it. That was all a prophet, a prophet, things that prophets are called to do. When they're talking about it in Psalms, they're talking figuratively. They're saying the law is sweet like honey. Uh, Psalm 19 talks about that, 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 that the law of God is perfect. It revives the soul. It's sweeter than honey on the lips. There's places in Psalms where it talks about God's law is nurturing and life-giving. And as you pray through that, if you took it literally, you'd be like, how in the world are they feeding and eating the law? And they're not. Jesus is doing this exact same thing. This is not, not to be taken literally. But Jesus is pushing them more than ever... To try to get them to snap out of their hard-heartedness. Feed on my flesh. Hang on my every word. There's a a saying among uh, Jewish disciples following their rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That doesn't mean literally, may you be always wiping the dust that your rabbi kicks off, off of you. It's may you be so close... That wherever your rabbi goes, you're right there behind him getting dust on yourself because you're so close to him. That saying is just like this thing that Jesus is saying. Live off of my words. Feed on the bread of my life. Stay that close to me. And you will live forever. Okay, so now let's reread this. And I'm going to take out all the stumbling blocks. 
I'm going to take out all the true things that Jesus says. But we're going to take out the things that, that you would stumble over, okay? So he says, everybody comes to me. I've seen the Father. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. There are people that ate stuff and they died. But if you're close to me and feed on my words, you'll live forever. You will live forever. I give my life for the world. Then he says, if you do these things that I say, you will have life in you. But if you don't, you don't have life in you. It's just not even real life. I will raise you up on the last day. I abide in you and you abide in me. Can you imagine? Like whenever, I think I've told this story before. Um, in Ephesians it says we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're already seated in the heavenly places. God sees all of time all at once. He knows, not saying he decided for us, but he knows who's already there. And so me and my wife are lying in bed in Central Asia. And there's about 700 rats or mice, we don't know which, on our ceiling of our bedroom. And that's all we can hear. It's the middle of the night and we can just hear them running all over the place. We're just like... Ah, at what point is the ceiling going to break in and we're just going to be covered in... We think they were rats. They might have been mice. But we're just laying there and we're listening to that. We're like, oh, we miss our family. We're miserable. And I'm laying in bed. Glory. Hallelujah. Holy, holy, holy. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I am already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And she kicks me and she says, that is not fair. We're still here. (laughs) Which is also true, right? Because I was reading a book that was really dwelling on that. I was walking around saying that whenever something horrible would happen. We're already seated in the heavenly places. Yeah, but there's rats above our head. Imagine abiding in Christ. Whatever situation you're in, if you think the devil is trying to attack me, well, okay, that might be true, but I'm also resting, camping out, residing in Jesus Christ. So whatever the devil might have to do, he has to get through Jesus first. Whoa. Whatever decision I make, I have this decision to make. And if I make the wrong decision here, Jesus Christ has said that he's not going to lose anybody that he's held on to. And if I desire Jesus and I make this decision, trying to please Jesus and trying to desire him, I'm making this decision abiding in Christ. I'm going to stay here today. So... Caleb and Cindy are staying home because Caleb's sick. They are resting and abiding at home. Imagine resting and abiding when you, this has only happened in the last two days, right? When you wake up in the morning and your house is colder than your blankets. 
you don't want to get up because you know everywhere else in the house is colder than where you are right now. What do you want to do? You want to stay there. That's what abide is. You want to abide right there. That's where we are. That's what Jesus says. You'll abide in me and I will abide in you. I will rest and be comfortable in you. So if you take all that, all these things, you, you have the option to hear Jesus say this stuff and be like, that guy is nuts. I am not eating his flesh and blood. Or you have this option, which is what Jesus wanted all the, every time he did. He said that he would always be speaking and some of them would get it and some of them wouldn't. He'd always be separating out and, and, and uh, cutting to the chase of who's really going to get it, who isn't. People that say, I want to draw, I want to, I want to talk to this guy. I want to know more. He's always drawing people to himself. And then in verse 59, John throws us a curveball. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. What? All right, so at the beginning of John 6, we're in the wilderness where, uh, where it's grassy and all these people are sitting down. They cut across the lake. The people realize that the disciples went in a boat, but Jesus wasn't in a boat. And there's all this controversy. And all of a sudden he says this stuff and he's in a synagogue. John doesn't pay attention to maps. John doesn't pay attention to the clock or to timelines. He just puts the stuff together as he thinks it's important and as he thinks of it. So all of this stuff where the Pharisees were arguing with him and where the Pharisees were having trouble, Jesus has marched right into the synagogue. And the way it would work is there would be these traveling rabbis. And if you saw a rabbi from another town, you'd be able to recognize him from the way he dressed, and he'd have his disciples with him. And you'd be like, oh, will you be the guest speaker today? Do you have anything to say? This is how Paul got to travel all around to all these synagogues. So they see Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, do you, rabbi, do you want to come teach today? So some of this was teaching right there in the synagogue. Not out on a plane, not on the run, not trying to stay away from people, but public. It'd be, it'd be like if, if I walked into the, um, the temple hall of Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, and I just showed up and all of a sudden started preaching about grace and forgiveness and that you don't have to earn your salvation. You'd be like, what? Right? If they, if they would welcome guest speakers in to, to speak like that, that's what Jesus is doing. He's right there in the synagogue preaching this stuff. He was really seeking after him. So then they start to get it. People really start thinking about it. This is a hard, this is verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? This is, I mean, they're saying, who could eat this guy's flesh? Who could live, live off of him as their sustenance? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus basically says to them, Guys, what if everything I've said is real? And you see me ascend 
to the right hand of the Father. We used to have a saying at the rescue mission. Some guy would have some story about how he used to work for the CIA and they put a chip in his head and they reprogrammed him to be a human robot and blah, 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 blah. And we'd be like, man, that guy is crazy. And there's one lady on staff, she would always say, if it's true, the joke's on you. (laughs) And we'd all be like, well, yes, that's true. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, I know this is a hard teaching. I know it's hard to grasp. But what would you do if it's all true and you saw me ascend to heaven? What would you do to all this teaching if, if I really did raise the dead? Then would you believe it? There are some weird uh, teachings on USI campus. And there's some strange people walking around teaching various things. And Isaac has started to experience some of those and get warned about them. And I was coaching him through that and talking about, you know, how do you deal with that? And I said, you know, you can just walk away and not not engage and not talk to people. That's totally acceptable and fine. If you want to talk to them, just talk to them in questions. And if they come and they say, you know, you have to do this to be saved, or God is a woman, or the earth is God, or whatever, start to ask them questions. What if that's true? What, what are you going to do if that's true? What if that really is a real thing? How are you going to act? What are you going to do? Ask those questions. And as you ask those questions, you're going to get down to what people really believe. If you really do believe this weird teaching or that weird teaching, are you really going to live for it? Are you really going to do it? And usually that's where all that stuff gets exposed is pretty laughable, right? But the same turns to us. What if this is true? How are we going to live How are we going to respond to Jesus saying, you got to live off of me. You get your sustenance from me. If he really is the son of God and you would really see him ascend to heaven and raise the dead. What if you were, verse 62, what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Spiritually, you're being moved. Spiritually, you're being affected. Don't live for your flesh. Don't live for your own desires and whatnots. Then he gives out this little hint, verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. What? He knew somebody was going to betray him even at this point. And then... Verse 66, this is kind of wild. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They abandoned him. They left him. There were a bunch of people that said, you know what? I can't live off of Jesus. I can't follow him for my sustenance. I can't depend on him for every single thing I need. I'm going to go and live for my flesh. Jesus turns to the twelve. This is the first time in the Gospel of John, that he refers to the twelve. So again, he's just assuming that you've read Luke or you've lived it out already and you know about it. He says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says what 
the people that really believe know deep in their hearts that we've got no other place to go. That Jesus, even if he teaches something crazy, like you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, our response can be, I don't know what that means, but I'm not going to give up on Jesus. I'm not going to turn my back on who he is just because I don't understand something he says. You have the words to whom, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, just the last thing I want to say about this. When we read the scriptures, when we see something in the church, when we hear about a weird belief, we can do, we, we've got a couple different ways we can approach that. And sometimes people approach it as, I know Christianity isn't true, so I'm going to study this to prove and build up that Christianity isn't true. There's other people that say, I know Christianity is true, so I'm going to read and study this in a way to prove that Christianity is true. And guess what? I'm going to tell you that both of those are wrong. Because sometimes the anti-Christianity people get confused and they try too hard to be anti-Christian. Sometimes the Christianity people try so hard to keep Christianity, as in the church and its structure and our practice and our way of life, strong, that they run over things, right? An extreme example would be throwing Copernicus in prison because surely the earth is the center of the universe. That's just one silly example. Or being mad at Magellan that he said the earth was round when the church at the time was convinced that the Bible said the earth was flat. I got another point. What if we draw near to Jesus? What if we ask Jesus what he means by these things? See, when he says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we come to know that you are the Holy One to God, of God. When we're confronted with something that is confusing or hard or doesn't make sense, figure out what Jesus says about it. Figure out what Jesus' side is or what Jesus' opinion is of it. It's really wild. There's a lot of horrible things that happened in Jesus' day that he never teaches about that he doesn't give an opinion on, that he doesn't, he might not even consider as the most important thing to talk about. And Jesus instead, if we trust him that he's the son of God, if we trust him that all, all of the wisdom of God dwells in him, then we know that he talked about things that were pretty important, right? And so when we're confronted with, with a question of um, whether it's how people do things in the church or what churches do or how Christians act or should a Christian do that or should a Christian do this, we can get all mucked up and we can, we can look into things. But Jesus says over and over here, He is the Son of Man. Come to Him for the answers. That's how you can have Christians that are Republicans and Democrats. That's how you can have Christians that own slaves and Christians that are against slavery. Why? Because in their context, 
they are they seeking Jesus with all of their heart and soul and living for Jesus and, and, and working within the cultural confines that they have to follow Jesus, right? That was a big stumbling block for a lot of people that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would want to murder Hitler because Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. But there's Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this situation following Jesus, feeling like God wants him to murder Hitler. So, with all that said, the end of this chapter is all about us drawing near to Jesus. It's all about us getting our sustenance, our daily sustenance from him, like we're living off of his very blood. Maybe not by drinking, but we know by the Holy Spirit being in us that it's His very blood that's in our veins that's keeping us alive for real life. It's His very flesh that He denied and gave up that gives us a resurrection, that gives us rising from the dead because He's defeated death forever that He'll do that with us too. So, with that, we finish off John 6. And uh, just want to encourage, I mean, myself too, even as I've been going through it this week, just a, a whole new hunger. Just to, what if we saw Jesus rising to be seated at the right hand of the Father? How would that change our daily life? How would that change the things that we want the things that we go after, the priorities we put, if we actually saw Him rising from the dead and, uh, and being exalted before God. All right, let's pray. Lord, put that fire in us that we would live for You so passionately, so energetically, like we already saw You rising to Your throne Like we already saw you sounding the last trumpet and calling all who are dead in Christ to to rise again. And all evil vanquished, all sin wiped out. And every one of your people made pure and holy and righteous. Lord, help us to live as if we've seen that already and walk in it. Because it's all true. Thank you, Lord. Amen.